Welcome to the Great Innovative Food Podcast, your comprehensive source for all things related to food. We deep dive into the intricacies while making one of our most fundamental concepts, food, easier to grasp. This platform connects the dots and provides valuable insights and clear transparency into a very complex system that might otherwise be challenging to comprehend. My name is Shorjo. I'm your host and the founder of the Healthy Foods Institute, which is what this podcast is part of. Today, we have Farah Agricola as our first guest on the TGIF podcast. Farah has a fascinating story as one of the most diverse food scientists in the world, working across many countries on dozens of projects at the most granular level. If there is someone who understands practical execution of food and agriculture projects, it is Farah. Farah intersects the ideas of business development and deep technical knowledge together, creating a model of thinking in the space that is unmatched. After finishing her master's at the iconic Wa and Ingen University, she worked in a significant number of technical roles and did a beacon for women empowerment as she has upskilled women to learn more skills and become more productive in each and every role, location, and area she went into. Today will be a fascinating conversation that will tell you more for the real depths of executing really difficult and practical food and agri projects for real people where it matters most. Thank you, Fer, for uh, for joining today. Uh, I'm looking forward to today's fascinating discussion. Um, I had was looking at your background, and I found that you actually did your master's degree in one of the most interesting degrees in the world, um, being food science, food science uh, from a nation that is both the second largest food exporter and the world's largest onion exporter. Uh, what made you select food technology as your degree of choice? Actually, in the place where I was born, there is uh, the, one of the two food technology colleges. And from that college, there came the most uh, popular or most known uh, directors of the uh, dairy industry. So actually, first it was a dairy technology school, but it changed later in food technology. But uh, from that school, there came the most uh, important uh, profes- uh, professors, the directors for the dairy industry. And the dairy industry was a very uh, important industry uh, in the Netherlands, still is. So that is how I got into food technology as the, the, one of the t- colleges was in my hometown. That's fascinating. I think how you got into it because from dairy into food, that synergy is something that uh, I've actually seen uh, happen in. I'm from India, so I've seen that happen also, where the dairy schools evolve into greater food schools, and I've seen this trend happen. So that's a, that's an interesting um, set of trends that are happening. Yeah. 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 It's uh, actually yeah. First it was dairy, and later it became. Uh, more broader in different areas of the food food sector. Got it, got it. So it makes a lot of sense. That's why the Netherlands is also very efficient in uh, in the dairy sector also at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, we produce a lot of milk, eh? so uh, 
we are very known for the dairy uh, technology. Actually, that is also that was also my main subject in the in the master degree. Okay, okay, that's amazing. I think dairy itself is a fascinating that's growing in importance now. Um, coming to this uh, fact of um, uh, dairy and even the Netherlands, of course, with its with its efficiency as the second largest food exporter and the world's largest onion exporter. Uh, why do you say ne the Netherlands is so incredibly efficient in producing and exporting food despite its small size? Of course, we have limited space uh, in, in the Netherlands and uh, looking at the increasing number of people, uh, we have to use that space efficiently. But, uh, and, and of course, we need to feed all these people. And uh, also we have winter time. So um, a, a large part of the, the year, we can't grow uh, vegetables uh, or other things. So we do that in greenhouses now, but also we learned how to conserve our uh, products. I remember when we, uh, when I was teaching in Mozambique and I was learning them how to make sauerkraut and to conserve the vegetables, they asked me, why should we learn this? Because there is always vegetable here. So, but from our background, from our history, we know that our grandmothers, we used to, they used to conserve already the vegetables for the winter time so that we could eat vegetables in the winter time. So with that background and the background of, uh, of a limited space, uh, we became efficient, but also the government uh, put it, uh, wants to be the Netherlands, the expert of the agriculture sector. So they also put a lot of efforts in, in making the uh, Netherlands known for the agriculture uh, 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 knowledge. Eh? Got it, got it. So they, they, they put it, they, they do also a lot of, uh, supporting the innovations of the sector. Makes sense. It makes sense because I think the world we're moving into in the next couple uh, decades is one where agriculture efficiency, I think, will only rise in importance, uh, especially with all the changes happening at, at, at the land level with weather patterns changing and agriculture patterns changing. I think the lessons that the Netherlands has, uh, has really built and can inculcate has really been tremendous. Um, especially because uh, you're, it's so efficient being such a small country. And I think that efficiency is something that is a trend that will only grow because that micro-sized, like bang for buck um, approach of really generating so much with so little is something that's very unique, I think. And I think other countries, especially like India, the African country can learn from uh, because that's really the only way I think you can really drive that scale for larger populations. Yeah. Yeah. So that, 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 that's interesting. So you had mentioned you had, you had also worked, um, you know, many other countries, uh, in the introduction, I'd mentioned that before too. Um, and you've seen many of the food economies from various perspectives, which is unique. You've seen the perspectives of food, how people uh, eat from a cuisine perspective, as well as from a, um, dietary perspective, as well as how people grow their food and the raw materials they use, uh, from, from many different lenses. Uh, which country have you seen uh, to be the most resilient from all the countries you visited and worked in? Which is the most resilient nation to find? I, yeah, I think we, 
It's uh, the Netherlands, huh? Uh, if you look, uh, of course, uh, in the other countries I've been, uh, we can, most of these countries cannot process like we do in the Netherlands. Most of these countries, they are still in uh, the beginning stages or they are uh, starting to develop, but uh, not like the Netherlands. Of course, in the Netherlands, there is this uh, issue of the, uh, the climate change and uh, how do, do we keep, um, we preserve our nature. That is now an issue more in the Netherlands because we are there with so many people. So how we, do we protect the nature? Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, with the knowledge and technology we have, we will uh, be able to manage it. Yeah. Which makes sense. I think that resilience is built in the system because of the entire uh, ability, ability, of course, from technology to, uh, to produce so much, store it, then, uh, then ship it out as a whole. And I think the other economies, of course, are more fragile. Um, due to their dependence on other factors that they don't control. Uh, just, I, I feel the Netherlands can control the most number of factors uh, when they're growing agriculture. And that could be one of the reasons why they're resilient yeah. versus the other economies um, have a, a harder time controlling factors like weather. It's hard to control weather and all. But the Netherlands can really even navigate through those challenges. Um would you say that's one of the re ways to look at uh, resilience in terms of food by the number of factors that can be controlled? Uh, not not everything, because with resilience, I think uh, also it's important to have space. Eh? And that is what the one yeah. thing uh, which the Netherlands is lacking. Of course, we have also climbed uh, land from sea. Uh, but that is, of course, a limiting factor. So the land, the space we have is is, a, is thinking so, something which is is a limiting factor which we cannot control. Okay, makes sense. I think the land, of course, is the biggest uh, capacity crunch, and that's something that is very hard to increase because you have to keep dredging more and more mm -hmm. to reclaim more land, right? Uh, you see now with the. Uh, increase of uh, migration, the land becomes more and more scarce and the land needs to be used for, for housing. And, yeah, that limits our productivity. Yeah. Yeah? Exactly, exactly, which does make it a challenge. Yeah. Uh, so from all the countries you've, you, you've also worked in, what country do you suggest is the most innovative in terms of uh, food, 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 like, finding new avenues and resources were increased. Is any country in particular that comes to your mind? No, not, not, not really enough. Okay. No worries. No worries. So I, I also noticed that you have driven many of the women empowerment initiatives before. And uh, that's interesting. What is your advice to women who are keen on solving problems in emerging nations? through food science and agri-transformation? I would really support them to continue with uh, what they are doing because food is a basic need. Food is always needed. Uh, in most of the countries in, in the emerging nations, they are still in the f beginning stages of uh, technology for 
transforming the agricultural products to uh, the consumer products. So I, there is a lot of potential for people, for, and especially the women, to go into this food uh, science, science because there is a lot of need of the, for this knowledge to develop their, their countries. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. Being from India, I've seen the potential uh, for food transformation to be tremendous. And we, and we do need more people entering this area um, because food processing really is the backbone of a nation. And if you're really, really efficient at it, it can really feed a population, which really drives productivity. Um, and of yes. Course, yeah. What you also see is... Uh... Uh, a new development in in the the use of waste. How can you use the re, reuse the waste in in different ways so to reduce uh, to make also more resilient all the countries. So that is an, another future which is still behind. Uh, first, uh, the emerging nations should process the food, and then uh, how to use also their waste efficient. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that that's an interesting uh, point you bring up. The waste to uh, waste to wealth. I think that's what I could call it. Waste to wealth as a way to generate value from waste is something that I think is one of the fastest growing uh, trends I've seen, particularly because millets, for example, is a major area coming out of India uh, as 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 an ingredient. And we've seen trends where you can take millet husk, turn that into fiber supplements. You can take a uh, millet brand, turn it into silica supplements. So the amount of use cases that I think waste generates from food waste, especially something that is just, we're just scratching the surface. And I think that can be the next boom of nations. How do really take the waste from food and turn it into wealth? Yeah. 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 There is a lot of potential. And, and uh, I remember when I started with food technology, it was still a, um, a, a profession for men, yeah. And we, I think, we were only a few women doing going into this food technology. Uh, so, but we actually women are very precise in food processing, yeah. knowing what uh, what you have to do. So, I I can only support women to choose for this profession. I think that's well said because I also uh, interview a lot of people from food background, food science, technology for different roles. And I've seen the women that I've interviewed have unbelievable skill sets in their abilities to really be technically sound and, and execute. I think they're way more practically, more practical in their abilities uh, in executing the complex food projects. So I've seen it with my own eyes how effective some of the most effective women are. And I really encourage more women also to enter the sector. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I think that the next thing what I'd mentioned, I'd said practical. So I think thinking practical in this sector is so important uh, because there's a lot of theory that exists, but applying it to real life problems, I think is where the gold happens or the magic happens. And I think that's where, um, I think you, Farah, I think you have a remarkable background. Uh, I remember our first conversation and your, your practical knowledge of how you really applied so many ideas was I think was I think was was fascinating because you were able to do things that I never thought were possible agriculturally. So you've been through so many experiences from raising making cassava in Malawi to making ginger in Suriname, which has been very very resourceful um, across different challenges and all. So how does one learn to think 
and adapt as practical and resourcefully when working across different nations? How does someone develop that skills and mindset? I think the, the most important thing is to be open, uh, to open and see what other people are doing. Eh? And that's uh, combined with learning, training, new training, that's, that makes you practical and resourceful. And of course, I have been in different uh, environments. So every environment, every new place, you see new things. People do it this way, this way, and you combine it with your knowledge, the, the theory you have from school. And that makes it, it very, uh, that's, yeah, that is how you can be practical and resourceful. Because uh, often the women or the, the people in the specific countries where I worked, they know the basic things, how to make the traditional food, but they don't have the theoretical knowledge which can uh, make it really work out as a production process. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, because if you combine though both parts together, you can really get generate a lot of ideas. And I find that people who are more experimental, I think makes a huge difference in, uh, in bringing that practical approach. And, um, and that is one of the best ways to be practical. If you just keep running experiments, to keep running, trying things out yeah. and tinkering, I think that drives that ability. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that moving on. So what's interesting as, as a, as a trend I've noticed these days is that many people these days are moving towards these frictionless answers where they want answers seamless to their problems, especially agricultural problems where they're, if they're not able to solve, um, and formulate a food correctly or solve the agricultural problem correctly. And they want painless problem solving. I think it's important to think practically. So in terms of your perspective, since you've, you've had so many experiences, you've ran so many trials, you've, ran, you've done, why is it important to train the mind to continue to be resourceful and practical in the world that's coming ahead? Because the world is changing. Has. Yeah. The, the things are changing. So the problems will be changing also. We will face new problems. And when you are resourceful, you can better uh, stand these new changes. I, I see when I go to the Netherlands and I meet with my colleagues from school, most of them, they are very specialized, have been in one place for a long time. And they, uh, when, when they look at a problem, they expect this is, uh, this cannot be the course. This cannot be the course though. So they, they have. Uh, limited uh, space to open their mind for new problems and and but the problems become different now we come with new problems even you see all the things which are happening through the climate changes we are facing new problems that will happen also with the food problems so we have to be adaptive and 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 resourcefulness to, to face these new challenges. Yeah. I think that is so critical, um, especially because I think that's important. I think what you just said is bang on, that the exposure that you get to more problem statements uh, really trains the mind to be more resourceful and practical because your diversity of problems you've seen is much greater. And uh, I've seen it in my own eyes because I've, I've tried to work myself on food experiments 
And I've seen it that if we worked on many different problem states, whether it's candy, whether it is uh, sweets, whether it is salty snacks, over time, you get better and better at intersecting and solving problems in resourceful ways that otherwise you couldn't solve. And I think that's what makes your experiences remarkable because you've been and seen so many different experiences. You're mentally trained to see things that others don't. That lenses is what you have really as a whole. Yeah, for example, uh, in the Netherlands, you would never face a problem with the packaging because you know the packaging comes from a company which has to follow certain standards. He cannot uh, uh, produce products which don't follow the standards. But here in, uh, or in Africa, I remember we had a problem with making uh, yogurt in a factory and it was packed in plastic. And I had a discussion with my colleague. He said, no, it's the pasteurization of the milk that is not good. No, I said, it's the quality of the packaging. And then uh, finally we discovered that the packaging was not following the standards which uh, it, it should have. Wow. So in the Netherlands, uh, you, you, the, the incoming goods, they are always controlled. But in Africa, not all incoming goods are controlled before they, they come into the factory. So when I brought up this, the director, he went with the plastic to the plastic factory. And indeed, the, 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 the thickness of the plastic was not as this, uh, what it should be. So we, you, you, you have to think all uh, in different ways where the problem can be and you have to be open to 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 doubt every uh, everything what could should be correct is not correct huh? but i think this mindset you learn especially in the in when you do the master degree when you do uh, when i visited the uh, Wageningen university the, uh, that mindset you uh, yeah, that science uh, mindset you you need to have to be also able to to solve these problems wow that i think is a beautiful example because uh i've seen that problem and seeing packaging as a factor that otherwise you wouldn't notice is so true to uh emerging nations because packaging itself i've seen always grows is trying to catch up with food food is really moving quickly packaging industry is always trying to catch up as fast as possible and i've seen it even in a country like india where packaging sectors are not standardized, boxes aren't standardized, which impacts food, which ends up getting spoiling. So I feel that if you understand packaging and you understand food in, a, in, in an emerging nation, that synergy that you can build to build a more efficient systems really goes up. So I, that makes sense to me because I've seen the same problems here also, where the packaging itself is not able to really keep up with the food that's trying to innovate, the food systems. Perfect. So I think that uh, moving on, so I think that one other point that's interesting that you would also mention once was you have this unique foresight where you'll see traditional ingredients and you're able to think of ways to replace it with another ingredient. Cassava is an example. The traditional crops like wheat that just don't grow in some places, you're finding ways to use cassava as an answer to it, which is a beautiful idea because wheat can't grow everywhere. So how do you develop this ability to to find these localized alternates and start applying them to nations that need better options that aren't that aren't available to those areas. Yeah, 
so you can only uh, work to then uh, you collaborate with other uh, institutions, especially research organizations. Uh, through that, you can can come to these uh, solutions. Huh? So you cannot do, you cannot find all this technology on your own. But networking for this is very important. That you are uh, following these webinars, that you are following what other organizations are doing who are uh, active in your same area. Like, for example, uh, I was working in a project with um, fruit and vegetables. There uh, was a, a factory where they made uh, these chips, crisps, uh, crisps, and they use a local potato, but the local potato, uh, uh, that, that one is, is, is not of a good quality. They had, for example, 40% waste, but also the size is very limited. So I contacted one of the research organizations here in the country uh, where they do research on the potato. And uh, what I, nobody actually knows that they had done a lot of research on the potato and they ha had developed new varieties which are bigger, have less uh, waste and uh, are more suitable for this process of uh, the crisps. So only through working together and find networking and find information, you can come to these uh, solutions. Huh? That makes sense. That makes sense that the ability to really uh, find answers to look externally. Yeah. Because there are a lot of external folks that are doing amazing things that just have to be found and connected to solve problems. Yeah, I, I don't know if you have heard today. We have the sweet potato, the orange sweet potato, which can also be used in bread uh, as a replacement for the wheat. And I think, uh, yeah, okay. especially now when the wheat is expensive, it's the, they are looking for alternatives. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's brilliantly said because I think the alternate to wheat uh, industries is just going to boom more and more. Yeah. Um, whether it's wheat potatoes, whether it's cassava, whether it's millets, um, whether there's so many other grains I've also noticed in India that have really come up. I think that itself is one of the most interesting industries to study. How do you really go and replace wheat with better alternates? Yeah. Yeah. So I also wanted to check with you on one another thing, another fact is that you built so many localized solutions and that requires uh processing so you don't lose the original flavors um so how do you build solutions so the processing retains the original flavors as much as possible so the traditions don't get endangered the only solution to keep the original flavor is to use very simple technology uh i remember uh working with guava guava jam uh, we had a very good taste of the guava jam, but when you go to start to use very high technology, that uh, takes away uh, undefined flavors from the product. So it's uh, when you use just simple technology, you can keep the same uh, taste as what uh, or is the what the people know from from home. Eh? But when you use too sophisticated technology, the, the flavor goes away. Of course, you can, uh, another alternative is that you 
you have sometimes uh, traditional ways of doing things which you could replace by better technologies, uh, uh, which makes uh, the product better pre preserved than the traditional technology. That is an and that uh, that is also another way. Uh, but uh, when you want to keep your original taste and the traditional way, you need to use simple technology, not advanced technology. Two. So when you say that point, that's interesting. When you say that, what are some examples of simple technology? versus more advanced technology? What could some of these actual specific examples be? So what, uh, if for my, in my case, it was, uh, you make guava jam. There, when you make guava jam, there is a lot of uh, air in the, in the jam. And by, as an alternative, you use uh, vacuum uh, cooking. So use, you, uh, you, you get the air out of the product. But with the air, you also remove a lot of the undefined flavors of the guava. So the taste of the guava jam you get is very different from the one when you would just normally cook and keep the, the air in it, let me say like that. You can also, for example, choose for a technology where the where the the mixer the the steering system gives less air in the product, huh? and then you keep much more the the original flavor than with the vacuum cooker. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I think that's so well said because I think that applies across industries. I think in industry you can use more simple technologies versus the complicated advanced ones. They're the best solutions are found. Uh, I think that simplification approach, whether it's applied to manufacturing, we want to make cars simpler with fewer parts, also applies to food because that retains that original um, original part that made it great. And that itself, I think, is a point that's so critical because the simple technology keeps the end state in its original form. Yeah, and I also think sometimes uh, to use advanced technology is also not cost effective in, for example, Africa. I recently yeah. worked with a processor in Uganda and he had a advanced technology for drying, but the other side was uh, the costs. So then the product becomes too expensive for the co consumer. Huh? For and I think, especially in Africa, uh, people are struggling uh, with the income, the the prices. Uh, they cannot afford the expensive products. So maybe this, yeah, to keep just a simple technology makes us also more resilient sometimes. Yes, does mm. does, and I and I think that itself is is well said because. Building simple technologies designs systems where resilience is built in, where supply chains don't get disrupted as easily, where your availability of products become more possible. If you're dependent on the complex advanced stuff, any small disruption like COVID or a storm will completely kill off your ability to, to really go and get that product or ingredient. So 
it's logical simplicity wins everywhere, honestly, because that is where real efficiency comes in to everything. Yeah, I like simple technologies because in the, the emerging countries, things are not fixed. So when you have simple, simple equipment, you can use it for different purposes. Yes. And you are not, as you sometimes the starting uh, companies are still finding out the, the processing. They can easily switch from one product to another product instead of being stuck with the specific uh, equipment for uh, one specific product. Yes. So that interchangeability comes. Yeah. I remember uh, I was I'm, I used to work with a company here in in Malawi which are uh, processing mangoes, and they bought a expensive line for making uh, mango puri, and then yeah they didn't find enough markets, but the investments were made, and you know next to this line they have now a complete new line with drying uh, mangoes. So, and, and the other line is there, it's not used anymore. So I think, uh, before you make a huge investment in, in, uh, in these emerging countries, you first should look at the market very seriously and may identify the real market. Where is the real market? Which product is, is really That's so true because these countries have complicated, uh, demand patterns where people's localized taste buds for products at different seasons, different timings, different festivals, varies so much that if you don't under really stand how people want the product and try to put a copy case product from another nation, you'll end up, again, wasting all the infrastructure as a whole. I've seen this also happen. Yeah. It makes sense that you have to understand the localization of the end products to really pick the technology and pick the infrastructure investment. I've seen it, that people rush into an investment of putting a line and they try to sell a foreign product and then the market is just not that big because the local folks just don't want the foreign product as a well whole because the demand patterns are so different than people what they've envisioned. Yeah, it's true. And also what I noticed, there was a market for the product uh, but the people who were making, for example, mango juice, they were used to buy a concentrate from South Africa. So they had to, re, re in, they had to reinvest in, in uh, equipment to be able to process the mango puree which they were using. Wow. Yeah. That's such an interesting point. That means basically it's so important to study the demand patterns, how people are procuring the raw materials before you go and make that investment. So the last point, what I was saying is that you had mentioned advanced technologies as a major uh, thing also, that also people use for developing. Is there any use case you would in particular say where advanced technology is useful over a simple technology? Any food, food related use case? I think the advanced uh, technology in emerging countries is difficult sometimes. You face a lot of challenges like electricity, and a supply of raw materials. Um, I think I think there is a certain maximum for the for the advanced technology, which is much lower than what we use in in European countries or Western countries. Yeah. Yeah. 
you you need some some step of uh, technology, but uh, with to a limited amount, eh? and and you you still need to be able to to re uh, re reallocate your pro- process. So mm. I, I have seen many many cases where the advanced technology, when you just buy things from from Europe or from America that are not workable here, and because I remember the very first country where I went, Suriname, I found a Tetra Pak Rishi who was working only eight days a, 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 a year because they couldn't get the raw materials. <laughs> I have seen a big machine in, in Uganda uh, coming from, from I think it was Belgium, for packa- packaging of yogurt, which has just it was just standing there, so the technology is too big. They we they cannot get the huh. the, the right <laughs> the right amount of supply for this machinery. <laughs> so, um, uh, in in my eyes, you better go for a smaller thing. Te- yeah, small technology, smaller capacity, which is more flexible, to to really make an impact. That really drives the maximum value because it's, it's localized. The localization is so critical. Living off the land. Yeah. That's what I like to call it. Yeah. Yeah. And you demand also, uh, I know here in Malawi, they are using a te- uh, uh, UHT machine, but they had to get the, the tec- uh, uh, technician from outside the country because otherwise they cannot run that machinery. Wow. So you depend too much from outside the country. I think you have to look for uh, local solutions. Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so logical because that localization in every aspect is like the only way it works, especially in these countries where efficiency uh, is really more important than anything else because of the local limitations and constraints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But good, I think that's fascinating. I think that, I think, is the shiny dime of this. I think that's an interesting uh, set of ideas that you really talked about that I think matters more because we don't talk about it enough. How do you really localize? We talk about all these cool tech stuff and we hear about it from everybody else, but the localization is something that should be discussed more because that's where real yeah. solutions are found to practical problems, yeah. I think also, uh, because also what you see here in Malawi, they are just starting with real food processing, but... Where do they yes. get the equipment from? From India and and China, because that is more uh, in the in the capacity range which we need than what is yes. from Europe. Exactly, exactly, and of course, India is also in a similar trajectory. It's also early in its food processing journey, so the technology you'll get is much more economical and much more compatible to that area. So, yeah. because. I, I'm also I've also procured food equipment in India and I've seen it. It's very compatible to the local benefits. It, it will it'll definitely work in Malawi also. The same yeah. sort of equipment, yeah. Yeah. But good. Uh, I have no more questions. But before we wrap up today, do you have any other points you would like to share um, with with our uh, audience today? Any other points? I think I I had a I think it was a fascinating conversation. But do you have any other points you would like to share with us? No, I, I only want to support all the, the emerging countries to go into food processing and to spend their uh, knowledge and, 
and they're learning in that area because that is the future because Europe doesn't have any space anymore to produce and uh, we are looking to the countries where there is space to produce food and also where you produce food yet you should start to process it you should not uh, yeah. uh, carry waste to Europe uh, for nothing eh? so uh, I, I really would like to support all the food processing in, in emerging countries exactly, exactly. I think Food, food tech is the future in emerging countries. How food tech companies come out of all this. Yeah. It combines practical thought and yeah, new ideas. Sure. And I think it's well said. Thank you so much for all your support, Vera. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. And that's all for now, folks. As we always say, you are what you eat. So continue to listen as we shed insights on food that will be relevant to you.